Yeah, Nolan? announcement. Did you purchase or receive by gift before November 27, 1990, a Millie Vanilli recording, a ticket to a concert at which Millie Vanilli performed, or Millie Vanilli merchandise? If so, listen carefully to this important message about a pending Millie Vanilli lawsuit that may affect your rights. If you fall into any of these three categories, you are a member of a proposed class in an action in the Circuit Court of Cook County, Chicago, Illinois. A tentative settlement has been reached in this action, which is subject to court approval, and which may entitle you to a cash rebate. If you wish to be excluded from or object to the settlement, you must file and mail your objection and or request for exclusion no later than December 9, 1991. For details about your rights, call 1-800-374-2874 or write Millie Vanilli Rebate, P.O. Box 91177, Indianapolis, Indiana, 46291. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 just go ahead and write Millie Vanilli Rebate, uh, you know. I should I can think of a couple guys that were in that category, huh? Did we should have we should have gotten in on that deal? Further proof that lawyers controlled the world just as much in 1990 as they do in <laughs> 2021. And isn't it funny that of all places it was Cook County, uh, Chicago, Illinois? Yeah, that <laughs> is. Yeah. So, yeah, some things never change, you know. Well, we're, we're and you know some... what else is funny, real quick? Yeah, is that if you look at the secondary market for the original copies of Girl, you know it's true. Those who took the rebate are idiots. Yeah. Because you'd be making a lot more money now off the resale (laughs) than you would have gotten on your initial rebate. You'd be able to retire, I think, now. Yeah. Well, welcome. Uh, I think uh, tonight's episode is going to be fun. Uh, Episode 62. 62. Larry Bartowski, I am 62. And uh, we're going to talk about a pretty unique one today. A nubs uh, and one that... uh, I think anyone that's at least in our, you know, sort of age range bracket has some kind of memories of, you know, whether it's the songs themselves, whether it's the overall fall from grace. I think what we want to focus on today, because a lot of people know the basics of the story is kind of, you know, going just a, a step further in kind of who these guys were and how this all happened, but also really analyze the songs, you know, analyze the album. Like, let's, let's clear out all the stuff that sort of swirled around it and really dive into what made these songs so appealing and, uh, and many would argue, probably including me, so great. That's what got lost in the whole thing, right? Was these, these songs, this music, the, the image was one piece of it that certainly led to its popularity in a very sharp way, as you mentioned, but it's, it's really these rather incredible pop songs that uh, were so good that people didn't think about maybe asking a few questions was <laughs> some of the more obvious signs of that something was afoot here. It also reflects a time when the music industry was just so far up its own ass that this would actually even become an issue. I mean, it's, it's laughable now, 31 years later, to think that this was even a problem because look at everything that's happened since. But yeah, let's also focus on the songs because... Uh, they're pretty fantastic, really. That's a great point. I want to hear more from you on that in terms of, you know, sort of what would this look like now? What, how much would people probably not care about this now? Or, 
you know, because obviously this was a much different time. I think cover-ups in any circumstance or any industry have become nearly impossible in today's world. You know, it's interesting to kind of think today, particularly with the production of music and the presentation of music and these things, you know, how a situation like this would, uh, would even play. I'm not even sure people would care. But we'll talk about that a bit too, even at that time, the notion of people caring, because this was not the, the orchestrator, the wizard of this whole Milli Vanilli plan. This was not his first time executing said plan. And we'll talk about that too. Nubs, I have one question for you first. So what are you doing back? Well, I sat back and thought about the things we used to do. It really meant a lot to me. You mean a lot to me. I really mean that much to you? T, you know it's true. Oh, let's go around and around. New Blaze, three LPs, and uh, let's see if you picked people who actually sang on the albums. Let's see. Go ahead. <laughs> I think for the most part I did. I mean, I don't know. Hard to say, but you never really know, do you? You know, as we learned back around this time, the, these guys were not the only ones who orchestrated such a plot. And uh, you never know what goes on in that recording studio, do you? So uh, run around for me, first and foremost, would be uh, the Devin Townsend album. Actually, a couple Devin Townsend albums. One is Sky Blue. And the other is Transcendence. Uh, really kind of listened to both of those in the last week. They're both just exceptional. Both of the Devin Townsend Project, which is this, you know, just excellent group that he put together. And then in classic Devin fashion, kind of on an instant disbanded the whole thing, which is kind of sad because it was such a great lineup. But uh, yeah, both of those records have been definitely spinning around for me. And then also uh, the second album from Julian Lennon, The Secret Value of Daydreaming. This was the follow-up to Valette. And yeah. it didn't do very well commercially. It's a good record though. And I'm mm-hmm. um, kind of rediscovering that one. I think after that is when things fell off a little bit more. But yeah, that second Julian Lennon album. And then actually the most, the most recent couple Julian Lennon albums were both fantastic. I, I think it was in the middle there that things got maybe a little shaky. But uh, the secret value of daydreaming. So yeah, that's what's uh, round and round for me too. What is spinning round for you? I am shocked that you didn't mention my first one, which is the new album from Quicksand called Distant Populations. And uh, I'm going to dig into it hard this weekend because those guys rule. So, uh, and that just came out last week. Uh, The second is the band Kansas. And this is a live album, so they did the um, so they did uh, Left Overture and Beyond, and then uh, the one I've been digging into this week, Point of No Return and Beyond. Man, they were so good. Kansas is so good. They still are so good. Their new singer, I love. Their oh, new he's singer. great. He's oh. just great. Yeah. Like if they come around, I want to go. Like hundred percent. Oh yeah, I'm in. Um, yeah, let's totally. make a pact. But uh, you know, hearing them go, you know, top to bottom on a great record like Point of No Return, maybe a band we should talk about someday. And then the third is uh, I'm trying to figure out if OK Go was a good band. For some reason, I got I, I revisited their treadmill video music video, probably one of the best music videos of, of all time, I would imagine. For here it goes again, and I'm like, mm, are they, were these guys a good band? So I'm I'm looking at their record, uh, Hungry Ghosts, which was their most recent. Trying to. Figure out if they were just a uh, 
they, they kind of remind me of jet a little bit. Um, not as hard and edgy, but you know, I don't know. I think they may have been a decent band. So that's what's uh, round and round uh, for me. Nubs, we're going to have some fun today. And I think we already teed it up a little. So let's get right into those nerdy deeds, buddy. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? Girl, you know it's yes, you know it's true. Girl, girl, girl. girl. Ooh, ooh, dun, dun. I'm actually doing the NYC subway mix, which is the most random track it's the last track on this album i don't even we probably won't even play it but it's basically girl you know it's true but just with you know a bunch of other crap going on girl you know it's true was released on march 7th 1989 on arista records there's a lot of debate as to whether clyde davis what what did clyde davis know and what did he not know Uh, but i'll tell you who did know what was going on and that was frank ferry and the producer a fascinating character in all of this, and we will get to it. Before we get too much into the deets nubs, I um I put together a little game. Are you interested? Oh boy. Are you interested? I'm interested. Let's do a game. Yeah. Well, here's what we're gonna do. When you get one wrong, because it's a true false. So when you get one wrong, I'm gonna say just wrong. And when you get one right, I'm gonna play this. <laughs> okay all right so that's the deal is it you you want to go ahead and do it yeah yeah let's do it all first. right then let's play and now your favorite game and mine here on episode 62 of two twins and an album it's time to play Milly, vanilla, true or false game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You ready to rumble? I'm ready. I can't promise I'll be exceptional at this game, but uh, we shall see. Well, let's talk about, well, hang on. Let's get this going first. Okay. Um, Let's talk. We always kind of give you a goal here. What do you think for Millie Vanilli, true or false? Now, you got a 50-50 shot at all of them, for crying out loud. What do you think would be a good score, an acceptable score by your standards? How many questions? Ten. Six. You know, one above 500, I think a majority. Sandbag. All right. (laughs) Yeah. All right, you ready? Yeah, these are true or false. Okay. No cheating. No Googling. All right, here we go. Nubs, true or false? Girl, you know it's true. The song was written by Frank Farian two years before appearing on the Millie Vanilli album. True. True is your final answer. The answer is I, I, I mean, false. Okay, sorry. I was going to say it, it probably was longer than that, but years before. It's still false. Oh, okay, all right. And here's why. Very few people know this. Girl, You Know It's True was a cover 
The song was originally performed by a group called New Marks, which was oh. a collection of local DJs in Maryland. And so it was an American song. Oh, Frank okay. Farian had nothing to do with writing Girl, You Know It's True. Now he wrote a bunch of others, but this was a cover. Girl, You Know It's True, Millie Vanilli's most famous song, title track from tonight's album, was a cover that was originally performed by Newmark. So Frank Varian did not write it at all. Okay. All right. All right you're 0 for 1, buddy. 0 for 1. Question two. Three singles reached number one from this album. Girl, I'm going to miss you. Don't forget my number and blame it on the rain. It, yeah, true. I don't know if they hit the number one on the Billboard 100, but they all were number one singles on the respective chart. Yes, true. True is correct, and few people know this too, that Girl You Know It's True of all songs did not make it to number one. It only made it to number two. So, Girl, I'm going to miss you. Don't forget my number and blame it on the rain where the number ones. All right, you got that one you're one for two question three Frank Farian himself was the first person within the Millie Vanilli operation to reveal that Robin Fab never sang on the record so he was the first I, I believe he was the first to actually say it the tape skipping I know was sort of a tip off that was a big moment but yes, because he sort of unapologetically said it, if I remember. And I don't think he thought it was a big deal. So true. The answer is false. <sighs> so John Davis, who was one of the real singers, several months before Frank Farian announced it at his press conference, um, went to a tabloid and told them about the scandal and Frank Varian freaked out paid John Davis to hush paid the tabloid to retract the story basically cut you know covered it up but he had to go through a whole cover up operation after this one of the singers John Davis who later would sing with uh with Fabrice so it's kind of an interesting whole ordeal uh, but he was the first to actually go public with the scandal, but they quickly covered it up. So Frank Farian was not the first. Okay. All right. I'm learning so much. That's right. About well, this is, yeah. See, this is not just a game. It's also an exercise of education, right? You like that? Absolutely. All right. All right. Question four. You're one of three. Rob and Fab both hail from Germany. Rob from Munich, Fab from nearby Lower Bavaria. All right. I mean, I can't comment on the cities, but yeah, I'm pretty sure they're both German. I'm going to go with true. The answer is false. Fabrice is French. Oh, that's right. So they met in Munich at a club. And they, they weren't became, born there. Okay, okay. And they became dance partners. Now, Rob was from Munich. But Fabrice was French. Fabrice didn't even arrive 
in Germany until he was 18? Pretty good questions, huh? You like good that? Question. You might want to change that one to born and raised it because <laughs> they're both from there. I mean, they both met there, but well, I, but I Fabrice it. didn't move there till he was 18. So you can say he's from there. Are you from Ohio? No. There. Okay. You're one of four. All right, here we go. Let's get you back on track here, buddy. I want you to do well. I want to educate the people and I root for your success. Okay. All right. The recording of the late 90s follow-up was disrupted by Rob going to jail for assault and drug possession which led to Frank Farian firing Rob from the project and continuing forward with a Fabrice-only solo album. That's all true. I, I didn't know Frank Farian was involved in that, so that would be my only sticking point. But, I mean, Rob got in trouble, and it did end up being a Fabrice solo album. It's false. So Rob did go to jail. Frank Farian bailed him out of jail to continue with the project. Frank Farian was really trying to help Rob at this time. And they were recording an album. It was a follow-up. Frank Farian was the producer. So they, it's very, not a lot of people remember this part because the album never came out, but they reunited with Frank Farian and they were going to release a follow-up. Yeah, that, that's, that. I did not know that. Rob got in some trouble, went to jail. Frank Farian bailed him out, said, come back to the studio. Let's finish this. So he, we'll talk about Frank Farian, the complex character that was. Or as Rob said, Frank Farian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 80,000 people, 80,000 people. Yeah. 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 All right. What does that make you? One for, I don't know. One for the world. One for five. I will not be hitting the mark. Well, I think I have to get five. Uh, I think, yeah, you got a You got a career now. Okay. Let's see if we can make that happen. buddy. Okay. Rob was ridiculed in the press after saying he was more talented than Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, and Bob Dylan. Okay. So Rob said some outlandish things and he was definitely ridiculed in the press. I, I do remember some some ridiculous quote. I'm gonna say true. True is correct. He said that he was that's amazing. More talented and a better singer of all things than Mick Jagger, Paul McCartney, and Bob Dylan. He might be right about the Dylan thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here come here come the emails. <laughs> right, right. Rob, Rob went a little rogue from time to time, didn't he? Um, all right, you're two. You're back. You're back off the schneid. You're two for six. Here we go. Frank Farian was a member of the Far Corporation with members of the band Toto. Now that's true. I'll just tell you that's true. And their cover version of "Stairway to Heaven" made the Billboard charts for the second time since Led Zeppelin's original version. I, so Frank Farian's company was the Far Corporation. That's all accurate. I don't know anything about the cover of Stairway. His band, his band was the Far Corporation. Oh, his band. Yeah, with okay, a I bunch of guys. The name. 
I thought there was the name of his studio too. No, he and the he and actually a bunch of the guys from Toto were in the Far Far Corporation. I mean, if that exists and if it was that big of a hit, I, I think I would know about it. But it's so detailed. I mean, if you if you came up with that, that would be pretty impressive. Got a pretty good imagination, though. I'm gonna say false. So it is false. The only thing that's false in the question is that it was the second time Stairway to Heaven made the charts because Stairway to Heaven was never released as a single. Well, that's that's true. Yeah. Led Zeppelin had one single and it was quickly pulled off the shelves. What song was that? Let's turn the trivia. Oh, yeah. What, what is this? I'm, not, I'm, I'm <laughs> the one asking the questions. OK, uh, they had one single and it was um Peter Grant went nuts, and they immediately recalled all of the uh, the forty five. Whole lot, whole lot of love, I guess. Yeah, it was an edit of whole lot of love. Okay, one for one. <laughs> yeah, nice job. All right, you're three for. You're making a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. Three for seven. Okay. Question eight: Weird Al Yankovic. A Weird Al Yankovic is here, Frank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird Al Yankovic parodied "Blame It on the Rain." On the plumbing song off of his Off the Deep End album. Let's see if you know your Weird Al. Loves is really pondering. I actually it. had that album on cassette. I don't recall a uh, Weird Al parody of it. The plumbing song? I mean, that'd be funny if he did a parody and they called it the plumbing song. I'm going to say false. It's true. <laughs> I've never heard that. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, it's actually pretty good. All right. Two more. Blame it on the rain was written by Diane Warren and actually replaced her song. When I See You Smile, which was performed by Bad English, at the number one billboard spot in July 1989. All of that would line up. It was written by Diane Warren. I know that. So that part is true. In terms of whether it replaced, I mean, the Bad English album came out that year. So I'm going to say true. It was true. Kind of interesting. So when I see you smile by Ben English was written by Diane Warren. What a what a um, calculated group Bad English was, by the way. Right? Like just oh totally. god, corporate. Yeah, corporate. <laughs> yeah. I remember the video. They made it look like they were performing at like a festival. They never showed fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's true. So Diane Warren at one point had "Blame It on the Rain" by performed by Millie Vanilli at number one, and when I see you smile. Performed by Bad English at number two. All right, buddy. Last question. Rob and Fab were asked to sing at their infamous 1990 press conference, but were kept from doing so by their manager sitting beside them. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's super awkward. Yes, they do. They sing at it. So that's false because one of them gets up and actually does it and it's very awkward i remember that you can hear a lot of flash bulbs while he's doing it i think it was i think it was fab 
It is indeed false. It's now, false. They, bo- they both sang. They yeah, both sang. So, yeah, so, right. uh, so Rob, Fabrice, typical Fabrice fashion, didn't want to do it. You could tell. You could see it in his face. But Rob just gets up like Rob style <laughs> and just busts right into the girl, you know, it's true chorus. And then Fabrice kind of does a little bit of the rap. And then, they, and then actually the press applauded for them. So, yeah. Interesting moment. Those are great questions. What are we at? A five of ten? Uh, One off the goal. We'll go with five. I think it wasn't, but we'll go with five. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you did okay. It was, it was at least four. You got hot sort of in the back half. You know. I think that press conferencing is interesting too because one of the there's so many there's so many misses and blind spots when you analyze this story, both in the consumer side and on the artist side and the producer side and the label side. I mean, it's just it's a story strewn with people who clearly were not paying enough attention to certain aspects of this. But one of the biggest things is like, when you hear these guys talk, <laughs> it's like, there's no way they were singing on this record. Like, there's just no way. Like they have the, the thickest accents in the world. And the guys singing on the songs have zero. I mean, they're singing purely in a, like an English accent. There is no hint of anything that would be outside of like an American English accent. You know what I mean? Well, one of the things that's really funny too, is that particularly Rob in those videos, cause he, so he's saying, you know, blame it on the rain was like a Rob song. Yeah. It was, it was his great. moment. Yeah. It was great how they had like fab do the like high pitched voice and Rob do the, you know, was, they had it all worked out. Right. They did. Yeah. So Rob was like the more, uh, the, the vocal, the, which is funny. Cause he's the one that actually couldn't really sing. When you watch Rob in those videos, even so, I mean, he's a, you know, native, as we just established Bavarian who spoke German. I mean, I don't even know that he learned English until, you know, pretty late in his teen years. When you look at his enunciation, like just look at his sort of mouth as he's lip syncing these words, even in the videos, you can tell that there are certain vowels and certain moves in English that he's just not trained oh, yeah. to make. It's not even close. It's, watch it's the like, Blame It on the Rain video. Yeah, yeah, totally. If you watch him close enough, you can just you can see it in Girl I'm gonna miss you too. That it's actually kind of funny to watch those videos and it's like, how did anybody not see that like he can't even pronounce even when he's lip syncing, he can't even pronounce these words, right? Like <laughs> it's just great. It's the era where you could still pull a fast one on people. Like you, you like to your point earlier, you just can't do it anymore. Yeah in 2021, but yeah. 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 It it says a lot about the time that they were able to like pull this off with so many, just completely obvious clues. You know, it sure does. The album went six times platinum, which is just incredible. This entire, I think one of the things we're going to talk about today, this entire saga start to finish, this entire thing was a year and a half. It was 18 months, this entire saga. That's incredible how quickly people were introduced to this incredible popularity and hype around this. Then you started to see some of the backlash, right? Like the Letterman top 10 and the, you know, in living color sketch, you know, making fun of the guys and all that. And then of course the, the, the hard fall, the press conference, the, the The Grammy Grammy. Yeah. This entire thing was 18 months. It's incredible. The tight period of time. There are really three dates that are notable. The first is 
July 21st, 1989, four months after the record came out. And this was in Bristol, Connecticut at uh, some festival, some fairground festival where Club MTV also happened to be broadcasted. And that was the skipping incident. Girl, you know, it's girl, you know, it's girl. 80,000 people. people. Girl, you know, it. I can't say it 15 times. Girl, you. Rob's such a lovable. It's so sad because he's just like, you know, he was this really troubled guy, but he was very funny. You know, he's very like funny to laugh at and with and, you know, had some really interesting accounts of this whole thing, but his explanation of the, you know, and then he ran off the stage and then downtown Julie Brown had to go chase him and beg him to come back. I mean, it's just, it's just, that's great. You know, that's just great stuff. The whole imagery of it is just, the whole story is just such a picture of its time. I mean, this, this, this story should be looked at in history books, you know, not because of its significance to music, it's significance to so many other things, you know, it's just, this could only have happened at this time. And so many things have happened since that make it impossible. Above all, do people even care? And that's one of the big questions too, T. Did people even care at the time? I don't, you know, right. I don't remember a huge uproar. Well, know. a lot of the uproar didn't really start until our second date of focus. And that is February 21st, 1990. And that was the 32nd Grammy Awards. And Millie Vanilli won the Grammy for Best New Artist. And that, this was really... Most, you know, sort of historians that have kind of picked this story apart kind of note that as the beginning of the end, because that was when you got a lot of focus and a lot of skepticism, particularly with something as prestigious as a Grammy Award. And the third was, uh, we referenced it earlier, the infamous press conference, November 20th, 1990. And that was really when things kind of came to an end. Returning the Grammy trying their hand at some singing, Rob dropping a bunch of F-bombs, Rob seemingly not being able to, he was so rabbit ears, huh? I mean, he just, he liked, he almost liked the attention and, and wanted to, you know, the manager kept trying to like wrap the thing up and Rob just kept wanting to take questions and take, Yeah, I mean, he almost liked the fire being on the firing squad. He's a very complicated guy. Well, that's where the, the compassion for these guys comes in too. You know, I mean, they, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it, but they were put in a situation that they were completely unprepared for. And especially for Rob, his background would suggest that he was just not equipped to handle this on either end. He loved the attention too much. And on the other hand, he wasn't prepared for how to handle all of it. So, I mean, it's just, yeah. Again, man, there's like, there's like 300 things that had to collide for this situation to be what it, it became. And, and they all did. Yeah. That's and right. one of them is the characters themselves. You know? That's right. And let's talk about him. Rob Politis um, had a you know fairly rough go as a child. He um, was born to an African-American um, United States military soldier and a um, white German stripper. Um, so he was born and he was immediately put up for adoption. And my understanding is, you know, he was adopted into a pretty nice family um, outside of Munich. He was always interested in being a star. I think most of his, you know, he had some passion for music, but his real passion was for dancing and performing and, and modeling and those sorts of things. And that's really how these guys met 
was through those circles more so than immediately through music circles. He did play some guitar and he and Fab actually formed a band prior to Millie Vanilli where he was primarily a guitar player and he also did some singing. You know, Rob doesn't have a horrible voice. He just doesn't have a great, you know, I think he was more of a, not a vocalist, but somebody who could maybe, you know, sort of rap or, or yeah. I mean, a lot of times with this sort of break dance, um, hip hop, new Jack swing type music, you didn't really have to vocalize over it. You were more, um, sort of chanting or, you know, and I think that, that Rob could do that. He's a very complicated guy. You can tell. And obviously, you know, to your point, once these things started to kind of, once the walls started to sort of cave in on him here, he and Fabrice really went in different directions as far as how to best cope with it and handle it. And Rob turned to drugs and had a lot of problems and, you know, eventually, you know, died in 1998 of what was deemed an accidental drug overdose, but a really sad ending to a guy that probably today it would have been fascinating to kind of see you know how a guy like that would have sort of responded he he sort of got knocked down and and just really didn't know how to get back up off the map and really never did and and they tried i mean they tried to do the comeback album you know they tried to record you know this late 90s follow up that we talked about earlier and Farian was involved and Farian bailed him out of jail and helped him try and get his shit together and they just couldn't it just seemed like a guy that couldn't be sort of mended and repaired after all he'd been through the complete opposite is his partner Fabrice Morvan who grew up in France uh, moved to Munich Germany when he was 18 and met Rob through the dancer model circuit. Now, Fabrice always had a little bit more of an interest in being a musician more so than I don't think Fabrice just wanted or even to this day just wants to be famous. I think he either already had or sort of further developed a real love for music. This guy loves music and you can tell by the fact that he is performing and singing, and he has a wonderful singing voice, and he's a great performer. I don't know if you've seen, you know, he's still doing Millie Vanilli songs. He's terrific. He's, yeah. he's great, and he has a good time with it, and he's, this is a guy that is just completely, and I don't think it took him very long, but at peace with the whole situation and kind of said, how am I going to pull up my boots and go forward? And the way he chose to go forward was through digging even further and harder into his love for music. Yeah. Like embracing it. Yeah. It's a wonderful story. He, he really is an awesome guy. I mean, oh. he's kind of a beautiful person. Like, Oh, he, he's got a, uh, there's like a piece about him. That's pretty incredible. And, and even the way that he reflected on it in the immediate times was so mature. It was so ahead of, of what most people would do. And it, it, it the way the paths that they went on are so, you know, are so important to, to look at because Rob, who clearly was just so ill-equipped, couldn't right. handle it and, and spiraled. Fab, who was really, really level-headed and also really talented. They're both talented, but Fabrice was particularly musically talented. Sure. Just moved forward, you know, and uh, kind of used it to his advantage in some ways, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's a very, as sad as the story of Rob is, 
equally as happy and touching in a lot of ways is the story of Fabrice. You know, we'll breathe on what happened and because I think most people know, but you know, Frank Farian was a um, producer and songwriter and performer in Germany insanely talented developer of music whether it was pop disco um sort of this this new wave and progression of pop and dance music i mean frank farian was just all over it he knew how to compose it he knew how to perform it the only thing he couldn't always figure out is how to package it because he wasn't a particularly like he didn't look the part and in some cases, you know, some of the performers he would bring into the studio didn't look the part. So he knew how to create a really, really good song. He didn't always know, or he wasn't always able to get that to match the way he knew these things needed to be packaged. It was a time period that's very similar to now in many instances where it's not as much about the music or the songs. It's about kind of how they're portrayed, how they're perceived, how they're produced, how they're packaged. And Frank Varian knew that, you know, this was a, this wasn't the grunge era. This wasn't the classic rock era. This wasn't even the pop new wave era of the eighties. This was a very unique time period where, you know, whether it was CNC music factory or color me bad or new kids on the block or whatever it may be. It was more about, you know, kind of the image of these things than anything else. Now, obviously you hit the jackpot when you could get the image right and you could get the songs right. I mean, that was the, you know, ultimate, right? And Frank Farian didn't really know. um, I don't think, I don't think anybody knew how much they really were about to hit that jackpot combination of getting the image right and getting the music right. And that's exactly what happened here. He had run this play before with this sort of, you know, notorious group called Boney M who we've touched on a couple of times here, actually. I think you had them in your round and round once. I think so too. Well, I I remember mentioning them to Brendan Bayless as well. Um, But Boney M was this sort of disco pop group in the late 70s, early 80s. And Frank Farian basically performed the songs with a little bit of help and then said, like, I need people to go out there and produce the right image for this music. And he recruited, you know, four people, um, primarily a front man by the name of Bobby Farrell. He's a very iconic guy. A lot of people probably recognize him. He's big, the big Afro, real skinny, you know, great dancer. I mean, a lot of parallels here to what he did with Millie Vanilli. But he basically put Bobby Farrell as the front man. Bobby Farrell didn't sing a, a, a note on any of Boney M's work. Now, the difference was, you know, this was a, you know, this was like a Euro Caribbean type, you know, pop disco group of a slightly different time prior to the Milli Vanilli project and either people didn't know and they fooled everyone or they knew and just didn't give a crap. And I think in Europe and some of these, you know, it was kind of like, eh, their songs are good. Who cares if the guy's singing or not? I'm having fun. Different idea of scandal in, in other yeah. countries versus America. I mean, we, we were in that 
news phase where the juicy story was very profitable. So, yeah. And it eventually came out that Boney M didn't sing, but it didn't really wasn't that big of a deal. And Frank Farian made a lot of money, sold millions of records with them. And, and you know, it was kind of whatever. So clearly, you know, he wasn't afraid to run the same play. He had a few songs written and we'll get to them on the record um, that he knew were pretty good. He had this cover version that he developed of Girl, You Know It's True. He brought in these session singers that did a really obviously great job on these songs and then realized he needed an image for it and uh, and that the studio session singers weren't going to cut it. So, you know, he he saw Robin Fab performing, dancing in a club, brought them in, threw some money at them, told them that they would perform on the album, didn't actually have them perform on the album, and then kind of put them in a little bit of a bind where, you know, they sort of had to go forward because they knew that this thing could take off and they could be famous. I don't think anyone knew the magnitude of it, but long story short, um, it became something that I think started as let's put these guys up on stage and have them be the image of these songs and make a few bucks. And then obviously got, you know, way beyond what anybody thought. And the rest is sort of history that I think most people are fairly familiar with. And we've already touched on a bit. Nub, I think what we should do, I think everyone has an interesting recollection of these guys, but I'm certainly interested in yours. Let's do the wonder stories on Millie Vanilli. All right, buddy, let's have it. What do you, uh, what do you recall about these gents? So we were, you know, nine, 10 years old when this happened. It should be noted that this, this whole situation happened at what I would say was a, um, a rather demanding time during our childhood, right? See, like there was a lot going on with us just from like a family situation and things like that. So I, I do associate this with a lot of uh, just kind of the, some of the harder times of our childhood. And with that comes once again, this reoccurring theme on the podcast, our mom. Because our mom really got into Millie Vanilli. Right. We've mentioned her record collection and. It was a cassette tape, if I remember correctly on this one, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Well, but we'll talk about this too, Tia. Actually, let's just talk about it right now. I mean, if the releases of the album are a mess. Just, yes. <laughs> if you go to the Discogs for Girl, You Know It's True. There's all sorts of different versions of it. Then there were rights that were sold. Then they did the remix album. There's some albums with certain versions of the songs, some albums with, with different versions of the songs. Right yeah. now in 2021, there's no digital release of the original Girl, You Know It's True. It's all remixed. And so one of the things that I recall is that there, there was the album, Girl, You Know It's True, but these singles were really the key and it was MTV, right? It was the videos, which speaks to what Frank Farian's kind of vision here to try and get this image attached to these songs that would be memorable. If you go back and watch the videos, you'll see how a 10-year-old kid at this time could be really kind of stunned by just the imagery of this. It was very new. It was very, very new. And in the end, it was the catchiness and the memorability of the songs, right? One of the things I remember too is just like the Millie Vanilli drum beat, you know, is used on every song. Yeah, that's the, they call it the New Jack swing beat. 
Correct. It was used a lot. And it's different tempos of that, really. Yeah, it's used all over this record, isn't it? Yeah. And when the scandal thing went down, I remember not particularly caring because remember we were also into heavy metal at this time and rock music and it it didn't have any impact on me whatsoever other than maybe thinking, okay, so they didn't sing on the, on the album, who cares? And then I remember in retrospect thinking, well, there wasn't that much uproar about it. I mean, it sort of just came and went. I don't remember an absurd amount of drama from the public about it. But I also remember the juiciness of the story being a thing to entertainment tonight and kind of those elements covering it. For me, T, it really was the behind the music episode that brought the whole thing back to life. It led me to go purchase the copy of Girl, You Know It's True. So I have it on CD. I'm showing it to you right now. And kind of from there on, just always held it as a part of our musical kind of journey, you know, just kind of living through this particular event. And uh, learning more about it as time went on was certainly interesting. But that behind the music was, I think, pivotal. I think that was a moment to really learn about the story and everything that went into it. One of my favorite clips on the uh, behind the music was when they showed the real Milla Vanilli singing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, it was a good move to get those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the guy with like the Jerry curl and the giant glasses. Yeah. You know, the, he's my favorite. Oh, he's so good. I, I just, I always think of him now when I, when I listen to songs, you know, nubs for me, it, you know, the behind the music is a, obviously a very important thing for you to mention. And I, I do think that that for many, I think it's the best episode that behind the music did. And they had some really great ones. I mean, that was a really, that was a really great show. I think it was a really important show. And I think that retelling this story and giving a lot of context to it and this story in particular was really important. I think it's the best episode they ever did. So, and there's some, there's some funny moments for sure. There's some great memories and, and there's obviously some, you know, sadness too with, with Rob, but some happy, um, you're very happy for Fabrice at the end of that. You know, I think, I think they do a good job of telling that story. Uh, nubs, I think of the roller rink, the skating station, mm. probably at the best time for skating music ever. You know, I mean, Stevie B, Color Me Bad, New Kids on the Block, Millie Vanilli. I mean, yeah, what the hell do they roller skate to now? You know? <laughs> well, let's right. cast our minds back to episode one, where you said that the skating station was the first place you heard Teen Spirit. That's right. That's right. So, and obviously that was like only a year after all this, it just goes to show you what that time period is. It does. It goes to show you why the world did need Nirvana after all. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, And I I do remember these guys winning the Grammy, even when I was a kid, I remember them winning the Grammy and kind of being like, wow, because we used to watch American music awards, Grammy, like we, you know, we were into it even at that age. There's this great clip, by the way, if you go back on YouTube, they perform at the Grammys and the first person they show after their performance, you know how they show people in the crowd and they put their names was Ozzy Osbourne <laughs> and the look on Ozzy's <laughs> face after witnessing the Milli Vanilli performance is gold. It's just amazing. Worth, worth the revisit. So that's like bad Ozzy too. That's like bite the head off the dove. Ozzy. Yeah. Like late eighties, oh, yeah. early nineties. Oh, he, he, he was like, in a bad place. He looked like shit. He was kind of fat. It was like, it was funny. It's, it's worth going back, but listen, there's, there's a lot of great ways now. Again, the beauty of YouTube and all, there's a lot of great ways to, to go back and rediscover the story and the details. 
uh, Fabrice does a couple of long form interviews and discussions with some people about it. And it's just great. It's just great to get his perspective and obviously just makes you love that guy even more. But hey, we talked about the record. We played the game. We did the wonder stories and the recollections. I think what we need to do now, Nub, is dig into this thing. So let's dig through these songs and see what we think, buddy. Let's uh, let's plow through. Girl, you know it's true. Here we go. All right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, probably a song that's fairly timeless and will uh, always be the trademark tune for Robin Fab. And that is the uh, title track, track one. Girl, you know it's true. All right, so, um, you know, the, the interesting thing, you kind of touched on it earlier, is not as much, you know, what you thought of these songs at the time, but kind of what they sound like now, and do they sound severely outdated, or do you listen to it and say, you know, oh my God, of course that was a hit, you know, and you put the image stuff aside, you put the sort of visual Robin Fab stuff aside, you know, the video of this, which was almost iconic. What a fantastic song in terms of the production, the, the, the little, it's a song that covers all the little things. I mean, all those little notes and beats and riffs and layers are really what make it. And then of course, the vocal performances, both really primarily, I think, in the chorus, as well as from those female voices. But, you know, when I kind of got back into this record, you know, going back 10, 15, whatever years ago, one of my first thoughts on this was like, yeah, of course that was a hit. That's a really fantastically done song, <laughs> you know, almost perfectly produced. So Farian, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, cover, but you know, Farian took this and turned it into um, a classic and uh, kicks off this album in classic fashion. Like most great pop songs, it's a mix between painfully simple and incredibly complex. The bass melody of the song is painfully simple. It's three notes, right? It just does an interesting climb. It's the vocal melodies and the way that they build. Mm-hmm. It gives the song a little bit of complexity that most listeners wouldn't really know. And what I'm referring to mostly is that the chorus and the way that the chorus builds into the next level within it. It's like the building blocks of pop music sound simple, isn't as simple of it as it sounds, which is a producer's dream. The vocal performances are excellent. I think that the key too is that, and again, like, when the whole Robin Fab thing kind of blew up, I mean, one of the things you realize is just how prevalent the female voices are mm-hmm. on most of these songs, but certainly here. And yeah. uh, it's a huge part of it. So, you know, really, really strong vocal performances from the real Millie Vanilli. 
But you can also see why the image of Robin Feb pulled this off so well. I mean, it was like a perfect image for these songs. You could see where when Frank Farian spotted them, just how perfect of a fit that was. So Yeah, and that's where I mean Farian was really smart. I mean, there there's no denying that, you know, and he knew how to provide the right image for Boney M and he knew how to provide the right image for this. And I don't think that's as easy as one might perceive. Now, yes, he had great songs to work with, and this is one of them, but you're right. He was able to present these guys, dress these guys. And if you look back now, their dancing is kind of goofy, but at the time that was cool. You know, all those moves and all the, you know, it was different and it was cool. And so uh, in the way they dressed in their hair, and I mean, it was just, you know, it was something that people hadn't seen before. But, you know, you get that image piece right. You get the dance and energy part right, which they capture really well in the video. I mean, when these guys performed live, it was high energy. They, they were going after it. And, you know, granted, they weren't singing. And, you know, there are a lot of people that have a dance focused show that either have a lot of vocal help or maybe even some vocal tracks. But, you know, you still got to go out there and sell it. You still got to go out there and perform it. And these guys did. I mean, if you look at their clips of their shows, they were wild. They were high energy and, and these guys really knew how to perform. So that's the irony. The whole thing is that, you know, really like 10 years later, the industry would become this, which is shows and performances that are dominated by the visual. I took my little sister to see NSYNC on the no strings attached to her. No one was paying attention to the vocals. Yeah. You know, I mean, no one, no one cared about the singing. It was the dancing and the good looking guys on stage and the production. And so what these guys were crucified for, you know, in terms of their music careers and in terms of their entertainment careers, bands started doing in the mainstream a short time later, and it was all perfectly appropriate. I, I'm, I can almost guarantee you that not all members of NSYNC sang every note of every performance. It'd be very difficult for them to do the dancing and the singing at the same time. Yes, these guys took the fall. But this style would be revisited many times. It's being revisited again now with the K-pop movement. You know, people yeah. aren't caring as much about the vocals or what they're singing. It's the image and the dancing, you know. That only made number two on the charts. Track two made number one, the first of three number ones. Baby, don't forget my number. amazing because don't you still see robin feb as the the vocalist absolutely i mean, when i hear these songs that they're still they're still the performers to me you know absolutely yeah. the only time i don't is i do see uh, the big guy with the giant glasses during the chorus of girl you know it's true other than that every other moment in this album i see robin feb i would say from i i agree with you there's one spot for me it's not that one it's blame it on the rain Ah, uh, okay. You know, I just, okay. I, I just know Rob, you know, yeah. that I think some of that's the video, you know? Yeah. It is funny to see Rob, you know, <laughs> yeah, singing lead on that in the video. It's just but funny. on this one, it's totally the imagery in my mind is completely Robin Fab. Yeah. Well, you know, this new Jack beat, you know, I mean, I think that it provides this album a bit of a voice. 
you know, it's reoccurring, but it's not irritating. It's used in different ways. Girl, you know, it's true. It's kind of used throughout the entire song. In this, it's utilized, you know, during the chorus hook. And in a song we'll get to later, it really drives the chorus hook. I think that that's kind of neat the way they did that. Now, I think that's a, that's a fairy in move, right? He knew this beat had legs. And you can tell that he applied it in the right spots. He didn't overdo it. It's not on every song. But it's one of the backbeat concepts throughout this entire record. And I think every time that they do it, it works. I don't find myself ever getting annoyed with it or irritated with it. Again, moments like that show that Farian knew what he was doing in the studio. This is a great track. This is the number one. This is, you know, coming out of the gate with Girl, You Know It's True. And then Don't Forget My Number. I mean, that's it's pretty definitive, don't you think? I do. I think it's definitive. The payoff for me is the uh, I've Been Searching High section. That, that's where Farian's songwriting, too, really comes into play. Yeah. Because again, it's that build. These songs really have great lifts and they lift and lift into these new sections. I mean, that's virtually like a third section, but it gets you there. It's a, it's a real pinnacle of the song. I, I love that part. Musically, this song might be the strongest just in terms of like a pure composition. I mean, it's fairly, you know, it, there's some songwriting genius that went into this one for sure on the part of Frank Farian and company. And you got to go with the original. I mean, the remix of this song is terrible. It's in, oh, yeah. It's not even, it's no contest. We get to our first deep cut here on track three. I can't stand to see you go, hey, more than you'll ever know. Another one here with uh, Rob, air quotes, Rob, you know, on, on lead. I don't think there was ever a video for this. I'm not sure this was a single. No, if there was, it would have been amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, seeing Rob do this one. You know, deep cut for all intents and purposes on this record. And there were only a couple, right? But, uh, you know, it's okay. It's- and not a Frank Farian track either. Right. Yeah. Right. And there are a couple of those. Very Motown inspired. There, there are two on here. This and It's Your Thing, which of course is, that's a pure cover, but um, super, super Motown inspired, in my opinion. It sounds like something that might come out of that era for sure. You know, not the greatest of tracks, but, you know, shoot, when you get to, you know, the next one, I mean, you can't have four in a row <laughs> that, that are out of the gate that hot. And it takes you to uh, the next number one off of this record. And this is the Diane Warren track that we referenced earlier between uh, Farian's production and Diane Warren's penning of this song. They probably knew of all the songs they had a surefire hit here. And that is track four, blame it on the rain. Now, this guy, you know, Rob, quote unquote, Rob, um, he had a fabulous voice and obviously, you know, stepping up and taking lead again on a song like this that has a lot more space, 
than more than you'll ever know and a lot more soul to it I mean, he's pretty much singing the entire thing it's a really really good vocal you know i think that this is the type of song that needed perfect production and perfect vocal treatment and if it got it it was going to be outstanding and that's probably you know i would imagine for diane warren who wrote mostly simple melodies typically you know she relied on hey put the right voice on this and get the right layering on this and farian nails the layering and the the quote-unquote rob singer i think just destroys the vocal this is a wonderful song i think this is held up extremely well i mean that pre-chorus is just so good and with, with the key change right i mean it's musically it's very clever and you know listen diane warren's a pro but I think this song holds up extremely well, and you can obviously see why it was number one. I would say Dolly Willie rule on this one, T. I think if Dolly Parton or Willie Nelson did a version of this, I think it'd be uh, successful and probably a hit. This would just be a hit record no matter who did it. Yeah, you haven't brought out Dolly Willie in a while. Yeah, it's been a little while. Kind of it, nice to see those two again. It really is a gorgeous composition. I think, too, you can't ignore just the role of the keyboards and some of the synthesizer sounds that Farring was using. Yeah. You know, the, some might say they're dated right now, but I think they just sound perfect for the song and the composition. If you remade this song today, I wouldn't change a whole lot in it, even though it's, you know, it's keyboards and synths that are pretty old, but yeah, th this song is just the perfect coming together of a great melody, strong rhythm too. You know, part of it is it's got that kind of biting backbeat to it. it it's it, you, you groove to it, even though it's a little bit more of a ballad for lack of a better word type of feel. Yeah. Fabrice sings this just beautifully live. I mean, he's done, you know, he's done it on his tours and I mean, he, he really delivers. It's a, it almost makes you wish he, I, I do think the vocal on the studio version here is, is perfect, but man, Fabrice treats it well as well. He does um, all, most of the songs he does. Yeah. You know, pretty, uh, you know, impressive versions of for sure. I got to think one of the things you've talked a lot about space and I got to think one of the things that you probably like about most of these songs, and you can tell that it's a lot of what Farian was going for, is that nothing is overplayed or overlayered, right? It's all pretty minimalist and usually over a pretty consistent beat, but lots of space. Absolutely, man. And it, that, that's the German way. You know, yeah. most German producers and German artists, they're efficient. Don't waste a line. Don't waste a, a breath. Don't waste anything. No, you know, everything's purposeful and intentional. And uh, you hear that track five and this wraps up uh, a pretty strong front side of this record with take it as it comes. What do you think of this one? You know, I mean, you're, you're coming off hot. You know, it's like those first four songs, like even with more than you'll ever know, it's like, man. And then you kind of round it out with this more upbeat track. What do you think of it? Yeah, this was one of the songs that I, you know, really heard for the first time when I rebought the album in the 2000s. Yeah. And I was like, wow, even the deep tracks are, are pretty damn good here. I mean, it's got nice musical flow. It's got a you know, catchy, memorable chorus. And again, the rhythm is just strong. I mean, it's just, you tap your toe to it, you know? So I, I think it's a good song. I, I, you know, you could see why it w wasn't a single or a hit, but you know, if they, if the album would have got more longevity more than a year, 
and they hadn't have run into the problems where they had to basically disown the record. You do wonder what the next level of hits might've been. This yeah. one's still really, it stands up very well as part of, as part of the mid range of the album for sure. Rob and Fab, or I guess the people actually singing cover the Isleys. I know a bunch of dudes that you like quite a bit. Nub. I, I like the Isleys. Yeah. I as love well. the Isleys brothers. Yeah. With, uh, with their classic song. It's your thing. This is probably the song, aside from the singles, that I remember the most from this time. Um, you know, it, it, I don't even, back then we probably didn't even know it was a cover, but this one sort of stuck out for those that, you know, would, would kind of listen to the hits and then sort of breathe on the rest of the album just to kind of get a, get a feel for it. Kind of a cool way to kick off side two of this one. What do you think? It is the only spot on the album, though, that to me sounds really dated. Yeah. You know, it really does. Just the production of it. It's the only song where I thought, eh, this one probably takes you back to the era, whereas everything else sounds like it could be done today and be reproduced in a way that would have been successful. So, you know, in the world of covers, I don't think that's <laughs> Millie Vanilli's uh, strength necessarily. I, mean, I know I know what they did with Girl, you know, it's true is technically a cover, but this Right. Kind of taking a true classic. And yeah, I don't think it works particularly well. It just sounds a little bit dated, but, but I see why it was memorable to you as a kid, for sure. Of course. I'm going to steal one of your terms here, Nubs, and call this one the Dufferoo. You haven't used that in a while. Dufferoo. Yeah, yeah, we haven't done a lot of albums with Dufferoo. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I'm calling this one. We'll see if you agree on Dreams to Remember. <laughs> you know, this is pretty uh, cookie cutter, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, yeah. R&B type thing. Yeah, it's not um, great. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not a, not a strong moment. Track eight, you know, Nubs, you and I have always been fond of the two vocalist approach when done correctly. And I almost feel like Prong could have done a sweet version of this, you know? Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think it's a song that really executes the two vocal approach really well. Um, much like the title track does, but this one really stands out in my opinion in that way. And of course, bringing back that new Jack rhythm for the chorus, this was actually to your earlier point nub, you know, they had just released this as a single when the scandal broke. So this was probably going to be the next chart topper for these guys. And they had already actually just released it beforehand. And you can kind of hear, you can kind of hear why when you plow through all or nothing. The thing I'll, in, I love all or nothing. We'll get into more of our thoughts in it, but. The thing that stands out the most always is in that opening verse when he does that. If you want to get down with Mr. <laughs> P, you got to go and let your backbone slide. Don't you know you got to push it up? Push it down like Mr. P. Yeah. So I was the first thing I was going to mention. I'm, glad, I'm actually glad you beat me to it. But even I remember even as a kid, 
I was like, well, there's Rob and there's Fab. Like, who the hell's Mr. P? You know? I well, that's what um, I'm saying, dude. There's so yeah, many clues, yeah. you know? So, yeah, right. So it was, it was like, you know, boy, what a giveaway. I mean, this guy, you know, they're singing about, I mean, that like their 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 buddy. I mean, right? The only thing you could see in hindsight is that's Rob doing that part, and it's Rob Politis, Mr. Oh, P. That was the only thing, but I doubt it was that. I mean, I think it was just, you know. There's another one too earlier. Is it, which song? Which what's the other song where there's a spoken word section? I think it's at the beginning of more than you'll ever know. Okay. And he says, Mike or something. He says, Oh hey, really? <laughs> hey Rob. Yeah. Mike. Or <laughs> I go back and listen to it. I think, I think that's another one of those slips. I think you're right. I think it would have been the next chart topper. And for good reason, it's a yeah. very well penned song. It's super uplifting. It's very fun. It's super groovy. I, I just, yeah, I love all or another. I, I think it's the hidden gem. On the, you know, on the entire record for sure. And, and would have been a hit in my opinion, no doubt. We're going to consider this the final track because I don't think there's a reason to do the, the New York subway extended mix. <laughs> no, no. I was like, why the hell is this on here? You know, um, it seemed like I just wanted to jam it on there, maybe to get it to 10 tracks or something, but it's like um, New York subway mix. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, and it's, it's like the song just with like a bunch of junk, you know, pretty funny. But uh, so we're going to actually close it out here with the third number one where Robin Fab break it down a little bit on Girl, I'm going to miss you. Dude, I love this song, man. I love this song. You do. Yes, you do. I think this song is so pretty and perfectly done. Again, space. There's space here. Tons. It's it's minimalist. The the vocal performance is good. It builds without being overly dramatic. You do get kind of that layered buildup as the song goes on. Even that extra pause that we just heard before it gets into the final course. And of course the, the, the outro, you know, where you're just getting the progression is gorgeous. You know, it kind of reminds me, we, we talked about some of the uh, sort of cheesy songs that we like on the uh, Q and a two weeks ago. And I mentioned, you know, Stevie B the postman song. Part of the reason I love that song is because at the end, they just let the progression go and it's a beautiful progression. Same thing here. You know, I love that the vocals come off. It would have been easy to just do a vocal fade. But the vocals come out and they just let that really beautiful, in my opinion, progression play out till the end. And I just I think it's a wonderful ballad. You could certainly see why it was number one. Right. I mean, it, there's it's got a lot of appeal. It is. And this is not a knock. It, it's pretty cheesy. I'm fair to oh, say. Yeah. But I can't think about just all the potential for this as a song. A lot of people could have sang this. A lot of people could have turned it into a hit. This is one where you can just completely ignore the Robin Fab thing and just appreciate the song. You know, there's a lot of different artists that could have sang this and sounded, you know, amazing on it. And the vocalists, they, they did sound amazing. They did a great job. But this song is really, to me, just very separated from the image. Girl, you know, it's true. 
Blame It on the Rain. Th- those maybe were a little bit more dependent on the image. Th- this song was going to be a hit no matter what, just because it's it's so pretty and it and it really connects with listeners. And uh, it was kind of a showstopper too. I know that at the shows that they did do, this song was kind of the bring it down. You know, the, this is where the girls would go really crazy. Well, they would pull girls up on stage. That's right. And yeah. they'd put them on this bench and they'd <laughs> they'd sing to them. In fact, I, when we played the true false game earlier, I, you know, that sound effect that, that I was playing for everyone you got right. That's one of our favorite parts from the behind the music. When, uh, when Rob, of course, he's wearing these like white biker shorts and this weird top, you know, and he pulls this like super like 80s hot chick up on stage. And, and that's his, re- he pulls her up on stage and kind of goes, whoa, you know, and it's always, <laughs> it's always been one of you and I's favorite. Very, very, you know, repeatable scenes from this uh, behind the music. But yeah, this was the part of the show where they would uh, bring a special lady up on stage and, you know, Fab would get on one knee and lip sync the hell out of girl. I'm going to miss you for her. You know, I think that's one you can't ignore about these guys. And part of their appeal was they connected with audiences. Oh, they did. Oh, they did. You know, they were really, they were really relatable in a weird way. I mean, they were. They clearly didn't look like most of their fans and they had the long dreads and they dressed in a rather provocative way for a couple of dudes. But there was something about them that was an every man sort of deal too. And I think that that was, you got to give them a lot of credit for that. Because as much of a star as Rob starved to be and, and really craved to be and became in his own weird way, there was also a deal where I think they really appreciated because they came from nothing. Oh, yeah. And these guys came from absolutely nothing. And before you know it, they're singing to screaming girls on stage. And, and there was a charm in that that can't be ignored. And Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You kind of embodies that. So I, musically, on one hand, yes, it's absent from Robin Fab because of the song. But in performance, this was a huge showstopper. And it was a moment where I think they connected so much with, with an audience that really adored them. In such a short time, you know, it's a great point. And, you know, they kind of had the like bad boy, good boy thing going on, too. I mean, yeah, Fabrice, yeah. even at the time, Fabrice was a very soft spoken, thoughtful, sort of don't step in it type guy. And Rob was a bit of a rebel. He was a little bit more aggressive and really honest and sort of had that edgy. You're not really sure about him. Bad boy thing going. I mean, it was a it was a duo that you could really see why they connected to your point. This song was a massive worldwide hit. This was number one in Austria, Belgium, Canada, Netherlands, Switzerland, the US. Uh, it was number two in Germany, in the UK, uh, in all of Europe on the Euro charts, um, in Australia. I mean, this was a this was an enormous song. And one that um you know, in a way, I guess, technically kind of brings the album to a close. You do get the Subway remix. We're not going to, we're not going to mess with that. So nine tracks uh, rounded out by one of the number ones. So you've got bookends here. Nub, Millie Vanilli, girl, you know, it's true. What a story, what a saga. But the important thing for us is, was it a great album? And did it matter? You know, the story matters. I said earlier, I, I think this story should be analyzed. I think this story should be taken more seriously. I think there's lessons to be learned from it. It's a great picture of an era of a time that we can't really relate with anymore. 
there's so much transparency now in everything that people do that it's almost impossible to understand that this all happened because it could happen at that time. So the story really, really matters. In terms of the album, I wish it mattered more. It doesn't. It's really an obscurity. You know, I mean, it, it, it truly is in tremendous obscurity. If you look at young people today, most young people today wouldn't have a clue who Millie Vanilli is, what happened. And unfortunately, they wouldn't know these songs. I'm waiting and I've been waiting for a long time for somebody to come up and buy these songs off of Frank Farian and use them and turn them into hits. It really could happen. And it's been enough time where I can understand why within the decade or so, some people might have been sensitive to the fact that if you try and turn these songs into hits again, there could be a, you know, kind of a connection or an association with uh, this scandal, quote unquote. Enough time has passed now where these songs can stand on their own. It's time for an artist to come along and make these songs matter and make this album matter by giving these songs a new life. They've tried to do it with remixes and remasters and increased instrumentation, but it really hasn't worked. I mean, the original versions of these are the gold. And I'd love to see somebody come along and respect these songs enough by turning them into modern hits and carrying them on. So would love to see it matter more, but it's going to take somebody with some courage to come along and, and recognize them, you know? So what, I, what do you think? Do you think it matters? Those are great points. I mean, I, I even think about, you know, this opportunity that, you know, hearing you say it, it, it does exist. I think for these songs, they're special songs. There's no question. I mean, you know, and this thing doesn't become what it became without special songs. And certainly I think, uh, you know, just plowing through the tracks, you kind of see what they are. You know, I think the story is important. I think that the album kind of matters in a more of a funny way, but you know, it'd be good if people, and I think that's what we're trying to do tonight here is, you know, sort of look at the record in terms of its musicality and in terms of, you know, what made these songs um, special and what made them land the way they did. I mean, these songs landed, you know, and there were a lot of people that, you know, weren't down with Millie Vanilli and thought it was silly and you know, whatever, but, but were they down with Mr. P right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But you know, this thing, this thing took over. I mean, this thing took over pop culture. This thing took over the industry and, and no one can deny that. One of the things I think that you really, if you're going to dig into this and kind of want to learn more is just the story of Fabrice. It's a special story. It's inspiring. You know, I think that it's the type of story that I will probably someday, you know, run by my kids as an example of how to respond to adversity, how to respond to literally the world, you know, laughing at you or um, canceling you or, you know, whatever it may be. Fabrice Moravin has shown people how to dust yourself off and pursue your love for this art that people basically ridiculed you for and said, you know, you obviously aren't able to do this. And he's basically said, not only can I do this, but I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it with a lot of love. And it's the story of Fab is unheralded and is tremendously important, not just for music, but I think in terms of just life lessons. You know, and it's too bad that Rob couldn't handle it. It's too bad that Rob had demons and, you know, some of those type of things. But to look at how Fabrice responded to this, to watch him perform these songs now with a lot of love for them and a lot of love for the audience 
and you know, his, I, you know, I, I went through his solo records, not bad. And he's very passionate about music and he's continued to pursue it. You know, he could have ran and hid. He could have left the industry and said it ain't worth it, but he kept going. And it's a really, really inspiring story. That's an awesome perspective, man. That, that is. And I, I hope people will take your advice and uh, be inspired by the story themselves. It's a great idea, too, to share that with kids. You know, these are, these are the actual things that really happened in real life that might connect with young people. As, as young people, you know, continue to struggle with failure and not getting likes on their posts and, you know, mental uh, health challenges and all these sort of things that are out there. This is the real story of somebody who actually encountered some adversity and went at it head on with a ton of grit and a ton of wit. I mean, that's a huge part of it too, is he really kept his wits about him. He never took the whole thing too seriously. And that's why he persevered. And that's a huge lesson for all of us. Great point. Who would have thought, you know, you'd get so much toughness and inspiration out of a Frenchman. <laughs> I'm kid. I kid. I kid. I love the French. We I love speak, our French listeners. I speak French. I, yeah, we, of course, of course. We love our, all of our. We're huge in France. We are. Yeah. We got a big following. Yeah, absolutely. All right, nubs. Let's do the final cut on girl. You know, it's true. Ah. On the turntable in the collection, collecting dust, or are you taking this sucker to the for sale bin? What do you got, buddy? I'm, I'm looking forward to this one. I've got it in the collection. I, I think it's a historical piece. I think it has historical presence. I think that it's part of a record collection. That's a conversation piece. It's a conversation stimulator. If somebody comes along and says, Hey, what's this album? And, and what's the story behind this? So in the collection, for sure. I think it's just a clear in the collection for those reasons. Plus, you know, songs are outstanding and it's a great period piece in the same way that we talked about with the rising and the same some of the same reasons that's in the collection is because if you want to build a collection of records that tells the story of the times, then Girl, You Know It's True should be in there for sure, man. See, where do you have Girl, You Know It's True on the final cut? I got it in the exact same spot, buddy. I, I think it's in the collection. It's pretty damn close to being on the turntable, to be honest with you. A couple of weak moments, right? I mean, you've got a couple, you know, sort of clunkers on there, but boy, the strong points are strong. And, and you're right about period piece. You know, I think it's, it's an album that if you want to sort of dig into where things were at in this time period in between hair metal and new wave, which was really what sort of led you into this. And then, of course, this is, you know, not even a year before grunge hit. So it was this weird kind of in-between period with a lot of R&B, a lot of sort of electronic dance soul type music. This obviously was a huge part of this sort of interlude time period between the two. Maybe the record that bridged that gap between some of those things happening in the sort of mid to late 80s. And it's just, some of these songs are just so damn good. I mean, these songs are just good. There's no question about it. So can't quite put it on the turntable, although it's close, but it's a hard, easy in the collection for me as well. All right, buddy. You think Dolores would have liked this album or what do you think uh, her take would have been? I think she would have loved it. What do you got, buddy? Lay it on us. First, I've got uh, the song Endless Circles, which is by Kip Winger, not Winger, the band, Mm. but Kip Winger, the solo artist. This is off uh, that solo album. This conversation seems like a dream, which is 
you know, what album people should check out winger just, I mean, we talked about it on one of our early episodes about the winger album, just such an underrated musician and his solo records are so musical and and so brilliant. So he's an amazing 12 string acoustic player. I mean, obviously he's a great bass player and all that, but those, um, you know, we talked about going to see him play solo a couple times with just he and the 12 string and man, he's, he's very, very skilled. Another person, very, very skilled, Stephen Wilson, Porcupine Tree with the song Trains <laughs> off In Absentia, you know, just maybe their most classic and beloved song. Never gets old. One of those that every time I listen to, I hear something new. You know, the album Van Halen 3 is taking a real drubbing. Uh, you know, th- there's some people recently that have done like lists of Van Halen worst to best albums. And everyone always says that 3 is the worst. I love Van Halen 3. I think it's super overlooked album. I think it's got a bad rap. And the song once off of three, I would love to do an episode on three. The problem is we've already done Van Halen 5150, but one day as we approach kind of repeating some of our artists, I would love to do something on three. Cause well, it's like basically doing a different band, right? I mean, this was the Gary Sharon, you know, single album. I, I think that would be, I think our judges would, would be okay with that nub. We'll have to consult the judges, but hey. by the way, big Van Halen news. I just saw actually like an hour ago, uh, before we, uh, kicked off the show here uh that that david lee roth has officially said he's retiring <laughs> probably, should have, yeah, probably should have happened a while ago but i wish you would have done that 15 years ago so that it would have been a van hagar reunion versus the yeah no kidding you know. no kidding we're both van hagar guys but but absolutely I, I think he's doing one more show like in january he'll go out there and butcher a bunch of the old so i mean he's, <laughs> yeah yeah he's he tried a few times to go out there and i mean he's just so so awful now but you know yeah. hey diamond dave's the man what can what can i say <laughs> yeah. all right t what is any yo hit well i've got uh this uh group from the uh you know early 90s that they're called Basshead. they had an album called play with toys with a bottle on the cover and it was one of those albums i bought just because i liked the uh name of the band and the fact that it had a parental advisory it's like, what the hell? I'm going to get another copy of this, see if it's any good. It's not that good. But uh, but there's a song called 2000 BC that I liked back then that I still kind of like. Basshead. Sort of, you know, kind of hip-hop, pre-hip-hop, trip, trip-hop, you know, kind of weird. You would take flyers pretty regularly in the oh, 90s yeah. at Repeat the Beat. You know, you would you'd buy, I mean, we all would, but, you know, that was part of the fun was buying stuff for the name of the band or the, the sleeve design or the name of the album or just whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the meat puppets, uh, you know, they had a record called no joke. This was back when they were kind of rocking a little more commercial sound in the opening track scum. You know that one, don't you? It's a jam. Yeah. Yeah. That's that back to back meat puppets albums, that one. And then the, uh, yeah. too high to die. Yeah. And that, that one has a great opener with, uh, Violet Eyes. Violet Eyes, Mother yeah. Master. Yeah, it's good, a great song. Yeah. Good stuff. And the third track for me is The Japan Droids, The Knights of Wine and Roses, which also they released a live album called Massey Fucking Hall that is uh, quite good. Captures, you know, those guys obviously have a really special, energetic, crazy live show. And there's a great version of uh, Knights of Wine and Roses on there. Nub, you know it's true. That this was a great show. <laughs> T, I know it's true. It was a lot of fun to revisit this. This was uh, during a, to your point, an, an interesting chapter of our childhood. 
it's a fascinating story and kind of a fascinating record to plow through from the standpoint of really trying to nail down why this thing took off the way it did. And it just proves that just like in sports, you know, sometimes regardless of who the coach is and who the opponent is, you know, good players are just good players and they make plays. And uh, I think in this case, good songs are good songs and you put them out there the right way, they're going to make a play, you know, and I think that's what happened here. I agree, man. You know, hopefully there'll be a movie made about this one day that can introduce the story to a new generation. And hopefully through that, the songs get introduced as we talked about, you know, cause that's the key that that's what will live on. The drama is the drama. It came, it went. And really in the end, historically, it didn't make as big of a splash as maybe it should have. It's the songs that could live on. And, you know, two twins in an album, just doing our part to have these songs live on to you. Well, I think they need to make a movie out of you someday, buddy, because I'll tell you what, you're an inspiration as well, to quote the great uh, Peter Cetera. So. I don't think anyone would want to see it. Yeah, it'd probably be kind of boring now that I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, thanks, Nubs. That's a wrap on episode 62, and we will be back with episode 63. That's the way this works. 62 into 63. But until then, we hope you enjoyed a revisit of Girl You Know It's True. Who cares who sang it? It was fun to talk about. And we'll see you next week for 63 here on Two Twins and an album. Y'all take care. Two Twins Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.